0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Jonah chapter 2 verse 7 to chapter 3 verse 3 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled A Flawed Prophet and His Holy Mission.
1: I don't know how you feel when you hear the flaws and failures and sins of someone you might have admired in the past. I recently heard of the phrase to cancel someone out. And that means that someone who's well-known has either been found to have, you know, engaged in either sexual abuse or racism or has not paid proper due to the gods of this age. And so all that they've done now in the past has been canceled out. You know, in some way, I, I do like the fact that we look for personal integrity in people who have reached a degree of fame and influence. But there's another side to all of that, and and here I'm not speaking about those gross sins which really do cancel a person out, but here I'm speaking of those more easily hidden sins. Things like pride or anger or a lack of compassion and unwillingness to be reasonable. I mean, those kinds of sins. Perhaps there was a pastor or mentor in your life disappointed you because you saw in him or her attitudes that shocked you. You know, how can a man or woman still struggle with these things? And so we feel tempted to cancel them out. Anything they've done, well, God did it in spite of them, and that person is now completely to be discarded. But would you be shocked to find out that Charles Haddon Spurgeon often struggled with debilitating depression? And in the latter part of his life, Martin Luther railed against the Jews and showed great anger against other enemies. Did you know that the great Hudson Taylor had absolutely no sympathy for fellow missionaries who were struggling just to make ends meet? You know, he simply said, you know, if you're doing what God wants, the money will be there. But he was wrong. Sometimes the money isn't there, and sometimes people might need help, but he didn't seem to understand that. Well, I could go on and on. And Why not consider Elijah the prophet hiding in a cave, trembling in fear, and telling God, look, I'm the only one left. I mean, what a self-pity party. I mean, isn't he the great prophet? Well, if so, what then is this? Or how about Peter, long after Pentecost, needing to be rebuked by, by none other than Paul for his very bad attitude toward the Gentiles who were coming to Christ? Are you shocked? There are no great men and women without flaws. And those of us who complain the most when we see these flaws, I think we need to reflect a little more on our own flaws. And when it comes to Jonah, it's hard not to be overwhelmed by this man's flaws or his sins. You know, from now, that is from the end of chapter two to the end of the book, you know, his bitter hatred of the Assyrians, indeed his bitter hatred, I would argue of Gentiles, does show through constantly. You know, it may seem to some that my portrait of Jonah is just extreme. I mean, surely a man with such a flawed character could not have been appointed as a prophet of God. Well, let's reserve judgment about that until the end, but for now, let's examine what happens from the time Jonah is in the belly of the fish until he preaches his message to Nineveh. We have up to now been examining Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of the fish. He's confessed that he felt he had touched the very dwelling place of Sheol, and yet in wonder, you know, as he called out to God, God has answered his prayer. Now let's go to the last section of his prayer, and here I'm reading Jonah 2, 7 to 9. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, on the surface of it, this is a faith-filled and submissive prayer of a man of God, or we might call this the prayer of a prodigal, The man who has run away from God and is now returning to his God, willing now to obey. Jonah says that when his life was fainting away. Now, we can't be sure whether he means that was when he was in the ocean or now that he's in the belly of the fish. But given that Jonah has already told us that his prayer was composed in the belly of fish, you know I I think I have to believe that that after having been in the fish for three days and nights, It must have seemed to him that his oxygen was running out and that finally left in the dark and sloshing in the juices of the stomach. He now thought this was the end. He was coming to death's door. In those final moments, he said, I remember the Lord. You know, those who have been around the dying will tell you that that quite often, this is not the case with them. Men and women die in their sleep or slowly as their life ebbs away, and they scarcely say a word about their need for God, they, they, they simply die. No cry for help, no cry for God. You know, the contrast between that and the death of the godly is an amazing contrast. I knew one elderly man who told me the story of the death of his wife. As she was laboring near death and he suggested they pray through Psalm 23 together. He prayed one line and then she would pray the next. And, and hers was the last line and she said it quietly but clearly. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then he said, Amen. And as he looked up, she was gone. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. See, in this sense, Jonah truly shows himself to be a true returning prodigal. He's a man who remembers his God at the edge of eternity. Then Jonah says his prayer came before the Lord, and he adds, His prayer entered into the holy temple. You know, is he thinking of the temple in Jerusalem or, or is he speaking of a figurative temple? I mean, the, the temple as God's dwelling place. Well, we're not told, but, but there's no doubt that Jonah had been in the literal temple before. Since he lived in the Northern Kingdom of Israel, it may have been that going to the temple in Judah would have been seen as an act of political rebellion. But Jonah must have been there as sacrifices were being offered. I mean, perhaps he had been there on the Day of Atonement, when forgiveness was announced to God's people. You know, one of the things that the temple represented was forgiveness, restored fellowship with God. And so he says that his prayer entered the temple. Perhaps he's thinking about the place where the mercy seat was, where God's anger was turned towards mercy. And then from that assurance that a sinner has found mercy, Jonah adds a line that has often puzzled me. Now, why not say, you know, and I, in spite of my sin, found mercy at his throne. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, those who pay regard to idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. See, in a certain sense, that might simply mean, look, you alone, Lord, are the source of my salvation. I can find no hope if I appeal to the idols for mercy. And of course, if that were what Jonah was trying to say, that that would be true. You know, he calls the idols, quite literally, vanities of worthlessness, and they are. Psalm 135, 15 18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. See, there are plenty of Old Testament references to the futility of idols. Jeremiah said that they were like scarecrows in a melon patch, only frightening those who actually believe in them, but they're actually powerless and unable to do anything. But the New Testament also warns against the sin of idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10.14 warns believers to flee idolatry, and 1 Peter four verse three tells us not to do what the Gentiles do. And then, among the many sins of the Gentiles, of of which believers must never participate, Peter says, is the sin of idolatry. And so, stated as it is, that those who regard or hope in idols forsake all hope of the steadfast love of the Lord, well, that's hardly an unbiblical thought. See, the NIV translation translates this as a line, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You know, that's a far more loose translation, but it does get at the idea. Cling to idolatry and you have no hope. But again, we're left to ask why Jonah mentions this in his prayer. See, in the last verse of his prayer, he affirms that as to himself, he will not turn to idols. He'll only offer sacrifices to the Lord. He, he will fulfill his vows to the Lord. He will do what the Lord has asked of him. You Was know, Jonah then making a distinction between himself and the idolaters? Remember, when this book began, we met the pagan sailors, and each of them was praying to an idolatrous god, while Jonah was asleep at the bottom of the ship. Remember also that these very same men actually forsook their idols and sacrificed to the Lord and made vows to him. Remember also that Jonah was on his way to Nineveh, and that city had plenty of gods. The national god was Ashur, but there were other gods as well. Nergal was the god of the underworld. Tiamat, the goddess of the sea. Then there was a god of writing and scribes. Marduk was the god they borrowed from their Babylonian neighbors. Well, on and on went the list of their gods and goddesses. And one wonders if right here Jonah is assuring himself that if God had sent him to go and cry out against Nineveh, surely he had misunderstood when he ran away from God. God would never have mercy on idolaters like the likes of the Ninevites. They had forsaken steadfast love. They had abandoned any hope of redemption. Perhaps that's what Jonah is praying after all.
0: Back to the Bible, Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Neufeld. The word is clearly taught, and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If you felt the impact of this ministry, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if this ministry impacted your walk with Jesus or someone you know, please consider supporting the ministry this month by participating in our Match Campaign. In June, every dollar you give will be matched by another dollar up to $100,000, in essence, doubling the impact of your donation. To do so, just give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: If I'm right in my understanding of Jonah's prayer, then we ought to see two very different streams running through it. Jonah's telling God that his days of rebellion and resisting the purposes of God are done. If God had called him to go and cry out against Nineveh, well then, his rebellion had been quieted. God had saved him from his own rebellion. He'd remembered the mercy that flowed from the temple. Jonah now made a new commitment. He would fulfill all his vows to the Lord. But on the other side of the equation, Jonah also quieted his restless thoughts by reminding himself and God that God had a zero-tolerance policy on idolatry. Surely God would not have mercy on Nineveh. One has to wonder what Jonah thought about, you know, the rampant idolatry that was present in his own land, in Israel. Yeah, I think it's very possible to argue that Israel's idolatry was far worse than the nations around her. You know, God had given Israel the Ten Commandments, It was Israel that had the covenant. They had the promises. They had a revelation that none of the other nations had. There's a vast difference between sins done in ignorance and those sins that are done with a closed or a clenched fist, reaching out to heaven and shouting, I will never submit. I love my idols. It's a sobering thought, that. But that is the story of Israel. Our text never says that Jonah was as severe in dealing with his own people as he was in dealing with the Gentiles. And we do know that by the time we get to the end of this book, that we will have to deal with Jonah's anger with God. We have to ask whether or not we would have had the same attitude towards his own people. See, I say that because, as we've already seen, Jonah occupies a very crucial place in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. All of Israel's external threats had been eliminated, at least for a brief period in her history. Jonah was called upon by God to prophesy, to encourage Israel to rebuild her lost and ruined cities, and that's what he had been doing. His previous ministry had showcased God's willingness to extend a period of mercy to a deeply idolatrous nation and offer to her the grace of time so that she might repent. And Jonah had been paying attention. It was not in the belly of the fish that he had first come to the conclusion that clinging to idols would be to forsake mercy. He had known that before, but he also knew that God was extending a period of time in which the idolaters might turn from their sins. Again, Jonah must have noticed that, and that's why he's deeply suspicious. That just as such a program of mercy had been extended to his own people, could it be possible that it could be extended to Nineveh? But now God had closed Jonah in. In the belly of the fish, he prays, and his prayer is heard in the place of mercy in God's holy temple. The rebellion is gone, and yet what will happen in Nineveh? See, that's what made this part of the prayer, the, the prayer regarding idolatry, it makes it so poignant. Is it possible that in one breath, the prophet seeks forgiveness and mercy, and then in the very next breath, he's lecturing God on what he expects must happen when he gets to Nineveh? See, I began by saying that quite often the servants of God are flawed. And I think of Peter, at least in the earlier part of his ministry, still struggling with God's grace to the Gentiles. He struggled with it when God called him to go to the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. It took a vision from God and a voice from heaven directing him not to call unclean that which God had made clean. See, it's easy for us to cancel out Jonah because of his attitude. He has a major flaw, and we, looking back on him now, feel we really should cancel him out. But let's for a moment think about all the disappointments we might feel with all of God's servants. Some struggle with self-doubt. Some have an inferiority, complex. Some still struggle with their old prejudices. Some find it hard to identify with the weak and the struggling, and so they are overly harsh with them. Truth be known, all of God's people, including the leaders, are all flawed. We do well to remember our own sins. And so we see Jonah with a prayer that may well have been flawed in and of itself, And yet the work of God has not been terminated just because his servant is not complete in every way. So let's go to Jonah 2 verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Have you ever wondered why the scripture states it as it does? I mean, couldn't it have said it a little more discreetly? You know, the Lord spoke to the fish and and Jonah was delivered from the fish or something like that. I mean, vomit, well, it sounds a little less than genteel. But I think the word vomit was chosen with a great deal of care, and here's why. Almost everywhere else where the Bible speaks of vomit, it's in very negative terms. You know, that doesn't surprise us. But consider how Proverbs 23, verses 6 to 8 treats the term. It says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. In other words, that which the stingy man gives you is going to make you sick. You're going to be throwing it up. It means his kindness is going to disgust you in the end. And there's a passage like that using a different word, but like it in Revelation. The church of Laodicea, says Jesus, he's going to spit them out of his mouth. 2 Peter 2.22 says that any believer that goes back to his former sins is like a dog returning to eat its own vomit. That is, when we repent of our sins, it is like vomit coming from us and we need to stay away from vomit. And there are some who argue that the fish vomiting out Jonah indicates that God is still displeased with his rebellious prophet. Yeah, God surely delivers the prophet from death and sends him back on his mission, but by using the word vomit, God is communicating to the prophet and to us. He's not happy with the inner attitude of this man. Nonetheless, we come to Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. If this book were designed to be a stage play, a comedy, I'm sure the audience would roar with laughter at this point. Because it turns out nothing has changed. The book began with the words, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And here we are at the very center of the book, two chapters after the beginning. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Go to that great city of Nineveh and call out against it. And it turns out Jonah is going. He may have decided to run to the west at the beginning when he was called to go to the east, but in the end, no doubt about it, Jonah is going east. It's just that he took a bit of a circuitous route, but God is still calling his prophet. The text can also serve as great encouragement for those who have resisted the call of God in the past. It is possible for us that we might yet receive a second chance. Those who have failed and those who have rebelled. And if that's you... Take heart, you're still alive, even though you're a flawed individual. But notice also there's something in this second call that's not given in the first call. You know, in the first call, God simply says, call out against the city, a line that is repeated here in the middle of the book. But now in the middle of the book, God adds, call against it, the message that I tell you. That is, I would make it very plain what you're going to say. The prophet is told he is now on a rather short leash. While now, short or long, the flawed prophet now embarks on the path of obeying God's commands. He's going out to ministry, but it's only ministry if he's doing that or saying that, which is in accordance with God's word. I have to wonder whether Jonah thought about Abraham as he was on that long journey to Nineveh, how God had called Abraham and told him that he would bless the whole world through him. No doubt if Jonah had thought about that, he might have rebelled again. But Jonah remains the man that God has chosen to carry a message to an idolatrous world of Gentiles. And yes, the message is from God and the messenger is flawed. God's ways are always remarkable to us, aren't they? You know, he uses people to fulfill his purposes. And there's a great problem with using people because people are a problem. You know, we're filled with you know, prejudices, we have pride, We lack compassion and we still have sins that we're struggling with. Today's message is not the assurance that you you can carry right on in sin and you can still be used by God. That's not the idea. Rather today is the challenge. Don't be comfortable with your sins lest you end up where Jonah finally ends up. Rather rid yourself of your sinfulness and turn to the Lord and be as pure before him as he wants you to be.
0: John, let me ask you this: You know, it, it, it's easy to look at others, particularly Christian leaders, and and feel some disappointment. John, here and now, I want you to know, and I, I know to your amazement, I confess that I've not always made the right choices in life. How should we feel about those who don't live up to our expectations?
1: Yeah, I suppose that there is a level of difference. You know, um, you know, if somebody commits an open sexual sin. Or someone has uh, taken money, or something of that nature. I think what we want to offer them is mercy and forgiveness, but certainly not reinstate them into ministry. Uh, however, uh, there are all the common sins that are common to all people, are also common to leaders. Uh, I think we do wrong when we say, you know, to a leader, well, you know, you. you You know, you weren't open enough, you weren't friendly enough, you weren't, I don't know what you weren't enough, but, and sometimes we misunderstand that leaders are sinners like the rest of us and are constantly in need of grace. And we who are believers should
0: give grace to our leaders as well. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Boundless Compassion of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. It's hard to believe the time has come again, but Back to the Bible Canada is closing out another fiscal year, and that means we've already begun to lay the groundwork for another year of sharing God's Word from coast to coast across the nation. To finish well and enter the next year positioned for effective ministry, our goal is to raise $325,000 by June 30th. To help reach this goal, generous friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift this month, dollar for dollar up to $100,000, doubling the impact of your donation. So consider joining us this month. Your gift means so much as we strive together to continue to present God's Word in truth to the world. To send a gift, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And one last note, thank you in advance for your gracious partnership.